ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, the saying is, it takes a village. What if that village was tiny? Last week, National Cabinet met to discuss the housing crisis with all sorts of schemes and ideas being put on the table. But one idea that wasn't being discussed by politicians is an idea from the community around a proposal of allowing more tiny homes. But not just allowing more tiny homes to be placed onto our private property, but the idea of building tiny home communities, tiny home villages for individuals and for families. Good morning. I'm Rochelle Hunt, your co-host, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. Daniel, it's not the first time that the idea of a, a tiny home village has been floated, but it's not as simple as it may seem because, well, some people oppose the idea. Mm. G'day, Rochelle. Straight up, I'm happy to admit I love tiny homes. Same. Like a, a little scroll through my social media. It's like one of my dirty little social media secrets <laughs> that I absolutely love them because in many ways they're architecturally gorgeous, they're innovative, and they use space and design really, really well. And until recently, I had no idea that there was such a dark side to tiny homes because you think about it, they're almost like the ultimate disruptor to the housing yeah. industry. Housing laws have failed to keep up with the way that tiny homes have innovated. And as a result, people are almost working like criminals in grey areas of the law, trying to exploit, you know, a, a loophole here and mm -hmm. a council bylaw there because there's just no clear playing field for them. They don't, they're exempt from building codes but local laws then limit exactly how long you're allowed to live in one without having then to move on 30 days later, 60 days later. It's almost like these people who have innovated, lived within a really small carbon footprint, which is something that everyone's you know looking to do, are being treated like criminals. Because they've got small portions of lands and laws that they have to live in. And it's such an easy solution for those who want to live in a tiny home as well. I mean, it does get mm. tricky in the conversation. I guess gets a little more complicated when they're seen for a solution for everyone. And a tiny home isn't for everyone. But more and more people are considering this for a multitude of reasons. As you said, environmentally, cost mm -hmm. as well. As we'll hear from today, some councils are starting to change those bylaws because we are well and truly behind in this country and in this state when it comes to relaxing those laws compared to overseas. You can almost use the comparison here of electric vehicles. Yeah, yep. we are just so behind and making it hard for people to be able to make these decisions. So then if you take... The next step, which some people, advocates for tiny homes, are saying, not only do we need tiny homes, we mm -hmm. need to create tiny home villages so that families see them as an option as well. So if we can't get one in your backyard for any longer than 30 days, how yeah. are we going to go creating a community of tiny homes? Is Victoria ready for that? And I wonder how much of this is a perception problem too. Tiny homes upon and of themselves are seen as architecturally beautiful and, and really innovative. But as soon as you lump them together in a community, people start saying, well, that's just a caravan park, mm -hmm. isn't it? Or the ultimate nimbyism comes out and says, I love the idea, just not where I want to look at it. So I wonder how much we have to change the conversation and the perception of these tiny homes because they are, in for all intents and purposes, a uh, at least one answer that's worth looking yeah. at when we're living in a housing crisis of people who can't afford rent, who can't afford to, to buy in and, and get their own little slice of land. And we've got so many slices of land that are available too. Council-owned land, Vic Roads-owned land. So I wonder why we're not mm. looking at this. Is it a perception thing or is it a, a reality? The last time I mentioned this on this very program, I think the response from some people was we will just create American-style trailer parks and ghettos, which is extreme. 
right, mm. to, to say that and to think about that. So where there's got to be some balance in between. So today we're looking at how we can make the laws a little easier and how far can we push this? Not only can we get a tiny home in your backyard if it's what you want to do, could we take it even further and create a tiny home village? Is it a good idea? Would you like to live in one? And can they solve our housing crisis or at least a little bit of it? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. It takes a village. What if that village was tiny? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warnable. This message already, planning laws in Victoria just must be reassessed. My family farm is over 100 acres. Family are forbidden from building more than one house. There is no reason with septic systems that produce uh, potable water from sewerage that the farm could not accommodate. They could accommodate four or five houses. This would allow my mum, my dad, myself, my siblings all to live on the family farm. This would free up five houses in town. It's a farce to say that the water table can't handle it. Just look at Europe, Asia, Japan and the USA. That's just one example, Daniel Miles. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that we need to talk about. And I love that idea of one house, one plot of land, all of a sudden there's five new homes in a town and that can bring in new business, that can bring in all sorts of things. Um, I'm loving seeing the texts come in and definitely the calls as well. Jeff's given us a bell. Uh, good morning, Jeff. What would you like to say? Uh, yeah, hi, Jeff Harris here. Um, folks, it's an interesting um, topic. Uh, our family, uh, uh, Jeff, or Jeff Harris and my son Brad Harris, we donated $4 million uh, to launch housing uh, three years ago and built 47 portable homes. I've just twigged homes. exactly who you are, Jeff. We've just been talking about you. Thank you so much oh my goodness. for calling <laughs> through. Yes. But, but, so but can you explain a little bit about what you We're going to be speaking to launch at the end of the program. So you did, you helped fund, you were the philanthropist behind creating a tiny home village. Yes, indeed. So we, we obviously saw in Melbourne about... Uh, four or five years ago, so many people sleeping rough. So we thought, what are we going to do about it as a family? Um, so we approached Launch Housing, who are the provider of housing for folks on the long-term housing list. And we said, we'll, we'll donate $4 million to build uh, 47 kit homes. And then we said, okay, well, what's, what's the major cost of a house and land package? It's the land. So we then did a deal with Vic Roads, who have got, and just listen to this, 22,000 titles of land in Victoria, unused land sitting there for future off-ramps and freeways. So we did a deal with them for a dollar a year to rent their land for 15 years. We put between six and nine of these portable homes on uh, seven blocks. There are individual folks, mainly women, and that's sort of, <coughs> excuse me, 40 to 60 age group, or most in need, uh, and Lord support these uh, folks by uh, bi-weekly visits uh, for any needs, special needs they might need. And importantly, the blocks are about, probably about half a kilometre apart. So they're interdispersed in normal suburbia. These folks are just in, you know, treated normally. They're not part of a, a homeless housing ghetto, as it were. So that takes away the nimbyism bit out of it. Jeff, what is, what's the reaction that you've had from the people who have moved into these houses? That I'm, well, I'm one sure of the they first were... ladies, I'll, I'll give you a... She, this was a lady that... Well, I took the first six that moved in out for dinner on, on the first uh, night. Uh, Deborah was a lady who was the first that moved in. This lady is 57, a single woman, who'd had an absolutely tragic upbringing. Like, it'd make you cry if you heard about it. Who'd been in and out of housing and all sorts of social issues all her life and she got me by the hand took me in, a, in her home which she'd furnish which she'd you know, put some you know, flowers and all the various furnishings inside even though we'd, we'd put the basic furniture um, and she started crying and i i, just, I started pulling my eyes out with her because it was to her the most important thing that ever happened these folks aren't toothless drug addicts there's so many people that need social housing and and i'll take it to the next level now, now then we then after proving the concept of a portable housing on government land, we then we donated four million dollars to that, and donated the funds to launch to support these folks. We and we donated for the, the houses, and then we went to the state government, got Tim Pallas out to visit the houses, and said we'll donate ten million dollars as a family, 
uh, for 365 of these. We saw one for every day of the year. 365, and we'll build them all around Victoria uh, for folks, and Launch can uh, manage, case manage these people that move in there. And unfortunately, we didn't get a reply. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is so disappointing to hear. So, so we, $10 million. We, we withdrew those funds and we've put them into other social issues. Uh, but that was the sort of, I guess, so as private entrepreneurs, we gave up on government to work through this issue. How frustrating is that not oh, just for, for you, Jeff, obviously, but for the people, the individuals that you're talking about? There's a text here that says, yes, please, I'm 78. I want to move out of my four-bedroom double-storey home, but it's just impossible to find a suitable replacement. And that's from Helen, who's in Geelong. We are just talking about people in our community and creating new and affordable villages. It is certainly, Jeff, a part of the solution. So you've then gone and taken those philanthropic funds and just... We've put, put them, them elsewhere. Youth, youth at risk issues, but I have got, I think, a, a an idea that could solve the social housing crisis in Australia. Australians invest three point five trillion dollars in superannuation collectively. We all have that invested, and that's the that's the aggregate amount at the moment three point five trillion. One percent of that's thirty five billion with a B. One percent. Now, so we can we can if we got all the planning ministers and the state ministers in a room and said and the superannuation funds and said, OK, super funds, we want you to invest 1% of your money now to build social housing near railway stations all around Australia in clusters of, I don't know, 50 to 300 apartments. Um, and and we and you might get a, normally get a 9% earn on your super funds, but this will, with social housing folks in there only paying about a 3% rent, we, the government, will top that up 6% um, or we'll make it that... Uh, beneficial for you to invest there by reducing land tax, by reducing a whole bunch of fees and costs, and we'll, we'll make the planning no more than, say, two months. So it's, you can get in there, you can mm. develop, and you can get that up and running. So you, you reduce all the, all the bureaucracy on the planning, and you might top up those funds for the super funds so they can free up uh, billions of dollars of cash. Super funds are investing in America and Europe. Why aren't they investing mm. socially? It's making Australia? that possible. Mm. Social issues. And you've I given mean, us a lot three. of food for thought here, Jeff. The text line's lining up. One here says, Jeff, the Prime Minister, or at least Housing Minister, so I, I won't put that on you. But given that you have worked so closely with government, you've seen this work in a small case study example, and you've already put your money where your mouth is and said, I'm willing to, to take this to a larger scale. If you distill it down, what's the one hurdle that's stopping this from becoming a reality? I think bureaucracy within government. I mean, if I was Mr Albanese, I'd get all the the state premiers and the planning ministers in the room and say this is our biggest social issue. As a country, we need three things, basic basic education for all which we've got, basic health for all which we've got, but social housing for all we haven't got. And a country as rich as Australia, it's unacceptable. I'd get all the state premiers in the room, all the planning ministers and say this, and the super funds, we want to solve this issue, let's do it and work through the bureaucracy and make it happen. Jeff, I'm with that texter that you should be for Prime Minister or at least Housing Minister. Thank you so much. And as we said, thank you for putting your money where your mouth is, for changing people's lives and for having that passion. So we, we really do thank you and your family for, for the work that you do. Because philanthropists, you know what? I always say, you could just hold on to that money. You know, you don't have <laughs> to give it away. You don't have to yep. do anything. So thank you. Pleasure. A little later in the program, we'll be speaking to Launch Housing. Rob's in Geelong. He says, hey, guys, my partner and I love tiny homes. We're considering options to free up houses, but also to release funds to make our retirement more comfortable. However, I am also a NIMBY and object to some of these tone used. How fair is it the developer's profit, council's profit, achieve all of these strategic goals? Whilst as a NIMBY, I suffer years of disruption, huge capital loss on our property. Perhaps some compensation would mean less NIMBYs. That's from Rob in Geelong. And I mean, even the term NIMBY is a tricky one to use, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. it does have a really negative connotation. But Rob is right there. If it is going to affect your property in some way, is a part of making sure that these concepts, these ideas get over the line, is proper consultation and compensation in some way. 
maybe we we do need to have that communication in those areas. But I mean, I, like Jeff brought up, there are areas that are owned by government, that are owned by Vic Roads, that are along a railway line, that that perhaps would be able to absolve that element of nimbyism because it isn't their backyard that's being hit. But I think there is, as Rob said, some merit in making sure that this is a discussion that that takes in everyone's viewpoints and perhaps compensation is the tick that gets it over the line. So is a tiny home village a good idea? Would you like to live in one? Would you be happy to live near one? And can they solve at least a part of our housing crisis? This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you. I'm in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable. We're talking about just making it easier to put one or multiple tiny homes on a parcel of land. When Jeff rang in before Daniel, mm-hmm. 22,000 pockets of land, he said, that Vic Roads have. Mm-hmm. He offered our state government $10 million and no one got back to him. I, you could sort of hear the frustration in his voice, couldn't you, Rochelle? I mean, that's a, that's not an insignificant amount of money to be putting towards housing, which is at the top of every government's list at the moment. So I can understand why he was probably a little bit miffed not to hear back from people. And it's really got people talking. And I love this text from Danny and East Bentley. Another element that we haven't discussed yet, a tiny house village could also help with loneliness. There's an idea that comes back to that idea of, I guess, communities and creating communities, which is something that's been so important off the back of a pandemic where we were mm-hmm. so out of touch and, you know, we, we didn't have those connections and we saw things like depression and, and anxiety skyrocket. So it's not just about housing. It's not just about the economics. There's also the community element. And maybe having these small homes together could create a community that, that would create social impact. This message says a tiny home village or just a caravan park and another that says what a man and this was referring back to Jeff Harris who worked alongside Launch Housing to create a tiny home village quite a few years ago. He was the philanthropist, he and his family were the philanthropists behind it. A tiny house village doesn't have to be ugly. There are some gorgeous tree-lined caravan parks all around the country that are far more attractive than some of the suburbs around Melbourne. Tiny doesn't have to be trashy. So how much of this conversation do we need to get over our stereotypes and our concepts of what villages look like and what homes look like? Wendy Stone is the Professor of Housing and Social Policy at Swinburne University. Wendy, this is something I I guess that you've been fighting for for a long time as well, the idea of just making homes affordable and accessible. Why do you think that for so long we have rejected the idea of a tiny home and made it so hard to put a tiny home somewhere that's easy and accessible for people? Oh, thanks, um, Rochelle. There are many reasons and it's uh, terrific to hear from Jeff uh, this morning uh, because um, I, I guess there are a couple of things to take into account in this particular conversation. One of them, you know, I guess... Traditionally, what the regulatory systems do are trying to balance out risks and the risks, as we know, in the housing situation in Australia have really shifted over the last uh, couple of decades. So a lot of people now are on the really pointy end of housing insecurity and housing affordability and and they're facing the risk of homelessness. It shifts the whole conversation away from uh, a more traditional planning conversation, uh, which can be slow and steady. We need some urgent action. So that the tiny house um, idea takes on, um, you know, a, a new kind of imperative. Um, we, we've got some really good examples that we can look to about how this can work, and we've got some really uh, good examples about what to avoid and what not to do when it comes to scaling up tiny housing. Um, and uh, I think the model that we've started out this morning's conversation with is basically the the golden uh, you know, A star model. This is a, a well-funded, not-for-profit, uh, supported by a, a not-for-profit organisation, in a partnership with philanthropy, a, a, a really reputable and well-established service provider, as well as government land. So this is the perfect um, model. What what we don't want to see uh, is a free for all uh, when it comes to tiny homes, either individual or clustered in a, in a kind of small village or large village. The reason I say that is because what we also know from existing research is that 
that the this can introduce additional risk for the people who may want to live in them primarily. So tiny homes are becoming more expensive. Uh, so if somebody cannot afford a regular land and, and house package, whether it's an apartment or a townhouse or a, a freestanding house, a tiny home may seem like a great option. But unless somebody is actually um, having a share in that land that that house sits on or is regulated very, very heavily to, to ensure that they're not going to be moved on very quickly, either by a council or by somebody who just wants to increase the rent on the land or that kind of thing. Um, scaling up can increase a lot of problems and precarity for people. If it was private, you mean? So if it was privatised, you think that having multiple tiny homes in one area, so a, a tiny home village, is not a good idea. What if it was state government run? Is the risk still as great? No, I think that would be, um, that is actually something that could be looked at very, very seriously in the way that, you know, the model that Jeff has described. So I'm absolutely talking about a privatised model. We know that, for example, caravan parks nationally are being um, being really changed. They used to offer um, more long-term accommodation, particularly for older people and uh, very, very low-income people as a good option. Um, but a lot of people have been evicted and moved on in the last few years and those van parks are, are, are looking to a different kind of business model which doesn't rely on, on the same kind of clientele. So we would want to um, really shore up the security that people have. So a government um, regulated or government owned and then community not-for-profit managed kind of approach is perfect And in, if we're talking about villages. And, and a few years ago in Sydney... Um, the other sort of way of thinking about this is that sort of individual units in somebody's backyard, for example. Well, Sydney sort of unlocked all of that uh, regulatory tape and, and basically people were pretty much allowed to have, if you like, a granny flat without a granny necessarily being in the, in the apartment or the dwelling, the bungalow. And we found some really good interesting uh, sort of data from that, that it can work really well. But again, there needs to be a role for not more, you know, bureaucratic planning red mm. tape, but actually a regulation around who's living in them, for what cost, and just ensuring that the quality and build condition is right, the local area and environment is taken into account. But most importantly, I think, is that people don't fall victim to quite predatory behaviour in the market as well. And that's another sound that we heard was Wendy Stone opening a can of worms there. Uh, <laughs> but, Wendy, stay with us. We've got a couple of calls on this, and I'd love to hear your take on them. Luke's called in from Wagania. Um, Luke, what would you like to say? I just think our planning laws are backwards. My wife and I have got a 20-acre rural block a couple of k's out of town, and we've gone through the limits of trying to build on it because it's its own farming land. We can't do anything with it, but... As, as 20 acres for farming, it's not really practical either. Mm. So th there's got to be a way where people should be allowed to, within reason, do what they want with their own land as far as building a house on it. Because we do have a nationwide shortage. I'm not sure why yeah. our planning laws are so antiquated. It's interesting, Luke, because it's kind of like Groundhog Day, your situation. So many people, I feel like, for years now have been saying the mm -hmm. exact same thing. And I guess as you would probably feel, as so many of us do, just huge frustration that there is a solution, right? It's not the only solution, mm -hmm. but it's a part of the solution, Luke, that's right there on your land. You're exactly right. And, no, we would be one of hundreds of people who would be prepared to do that sort of thing, to open up more housing in town, and we just get roadblocks all the time. Absolutely. Luke, we can hear the frustration in your voice. Thanks for giving us a call. Uh, Stephen's given us a bell as well in Cheltenham. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah, g'day, folks. Wonderful discussion on tiny houses and full marks to you. Look, around 18 years ago, I squatted in a house in a very prestigious area of Melbourne, which was owned by a state government instrumentality. Now, I was there for 16 months before they discovered my presence, and I remained there in total for just short of 10 years. Wow. Now, it, it had been a group home for uh, people suffering mental illness. I was an individual suffering mental illness, so I thought, beauty. Uh, and what they did after I eventually left 
was that they went in, they tore up the gas pipes, they tore up the water pipes, mm. they tore out the, the kitchen, so on and so forth, to make it totally unusable. But were an honest broker to go in yeah. to the state government and look at the properties that they've got available, which are sitting empty, uh, and there are so many of them, that would be one hell of a, a good starting point as well. So what did you do? I mean, I guess squatting is is totally different, but it, you had somewhere to live, right? You had somewhere where, to a certain degree, you would have felt protected and safe, Stephen. What happened once they found that you were living there and they cut off all of those services? Did you have somewhere to go? No, they did not cut off the, the services, Rochelle. They, they, distru- they basically made the house... Unlivable for anyone after I left. And when uh, I'm a veteran, and uh, when I did leave the place, I I tapped into the the veteran network and was uh, was was looked after by mates from from my regiment and um, went on from there. Gosh, that's a whole other conversation that we've only touched Mm. on a little bit in this. Thank you so much for your service, Stephen, as well as looking at how we. Oh, how we look after our returned men and women from service and whether it be work, whether it be housing yep. and connecting them to those services. I think that's a follow-on for us at Absolutely. some point, Daniel Miles. Wendy Stone, you remained on the line with us and you've heard some of those calls, Professor of Housing and Social Policy at Swinburne University. Wendy, is there a stepping stone into this community idea that we've got that can be taken with, like our first caller said, a a parcel of land in a regional area, they're ready to develop it, they're ready to to cut it up into four or five different spots and have four or five different tiny homes on them. And it's something we're hearing on the text line as well, of people who are willing to have these uh, tiny homes on their rural properties, freeing up homes in in the towns themselves. Is that a stepping stone into making this more acceptable, more palatable, more understanding for those in the community? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it has to be done well. Uh, What we don't want to do is add more crisis into the crisis. And uh, and the week before last, um, I was in Parliament in Canberra actually speaking um, with the uh, the actual housing minister um, rather than Jeff Harris. And um, uh, what we were taking to Canberra in that... um, in that week was new research from us about ageing in a housing crisis and and even the stories that we heard from um, in, in our research indicate that where people don't have uh, a share in the land or where there's uh, mm. a private um, profit to be made, people can really get into trouble. So what would ha- need to happen with these situations where people can really see that it just, you know, lightening up the, the planning regulations, we could put another couple of dwellings on our property. That's, um, that's That may work really well, but there will be cases, unfortunately, where it, it doesn't actually work out well. And, and there need to be regulations around Absolutely. who's I'm living in them. Are they safe? Are they paying adequate um, or you know decent rent? Not being exploited, and the environmental considerations. So it's not to add in you know just more and more bureaucracy. I do think that the planning system needs to be adjusting and, and keeping up with the need for more housing, and that we can look at loosening some aspects. Of course, of because if you throw a wider lens over this conversation, which is looking at actually just some of the stigma and stereotype around tiny homes, yes, they can be seen as crisis accommodation, they can be seen as alternatives to try and stop people from falling into homelessness, in particular for older women. But there are advocates from the tiny house community that actually just choose to want to live in tiny homes and want mm. families to live in tiny homes as well. Yep. So that they're not always, because I mean, there's a text here, Wendy, that says, isn't this just creating ghettos of disadvantage for society and that is coming through a little bit so it's looking at how we actually view them that they don't always have to be crisis accommodation no not at all um absolutely there are definitely people who want to live in community who want to really um put you know environment first and just live more simply live with without the huge debt that we you know we can have in this society with housing so absolutely we i think we there's a national movement, I think, across councils. Griffiths University has done some research around the extent to which councils are starting to shift and they really are starting to to move towards looking at 
um, can there be ways that tiny homes could be a part of a housing solution? I think that's really welcome. What, what we don't want is a piecemeal approach where we're introducing more problems. So if we have a, a more of a consistent national look at this, we don't want to introduce another, if you like, Uber into the housing market yeah. and then mm -hmm. end up with problems in 10 years to retrofit and, and really claw back. Yeah, Wendy, thank you so much for your insights and for the work that you do as well. It's so important. Wendy Stone, Professor of Housing and Social Policy at Swinburne University. Councils are starting to make their own changes, Daniel Miles, aren't mm -hmm. they? And I guess if you, as someone that has the power to change bylaws or whatever it may yep. be, if you're able to get people in your community into a home, this is what it's going to take, but it's starting to see why these decisions are so complicated. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And in many ways, as Wendy was saying, perhaps the piecemeal approach of these local councils making small bylaws changes here and there is actually opening up a greater risk. But then it it prompts the question, why isn't the national or, or state levels of government a bit more interested in this? When Wendy went to Parliament with you know Senator David Pocock to talk about this we're not hearing from government taking this as an example we're hearing about building more homes but none of them are tiny so i guess in this housing crisis that we find ourselves are tiny home villages a good idea would you live in one can they solve our housing crisis this is the conversation hour on abc radio melbourne and victoria Michelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you. We are talking about the creation of tiny homes and tiny home villages. How do we make it easier? How do we make them simple? And how do we ensure that people don't get exploited in the process? This message, you can worry about everything and then nothing gets done. Mm -hmm. And another says one person's ghetto is another person's community. And many people saying, I love tiny homes, especially as an older woman. I would love to be able to simplify my life, my heating and my cooling costs. I mean, that's the other thing that we haven't brought into this yep. as well. Absolutely. And it's not just people, like you mentioned earlier, not just people who need crisis accommodation, not just people who can only afford smaller accommodation. The other thing that we have to take in mind is that there are people out there who are environmentally minded, looking to reduce their carbon footprint, looking to reduce their literal footprint. And that's why this is such an enticing option. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. How are you? Very well. What would you like to say? I, I would just like to say about all the shipping um, containers that is sitting around on the ports, et cetera, it's something that we could use. It's there, there's no shortage of them, and we could change those very easily into homes, whether it is uh, crisis accommodation. It, it's something that we could change and use that's there. We don't no. have to go looking or trying to buy anything. I like your open-mindedness. I like the uh, the green thinking there, Jan. You live in a beautiful <laughs> part of regional Victoria and Bendigo. Would you be happy to see some of these shipping containers lined up side by side, appropriately so, and forming part of a community, a small village inside Bendigo? Yes, I would. There's a lot of people who would use, as we're talking about, older people, people on their own who are saving up for something bigger or better. Um, it's, it's just the government talks and talks, but nothing's happening. And these children that don't have a home, they're growing up in the back of the car because their mum yeah. can't afford a car. We talk about damages of the houses. What about these children? Jan, thank you. And it does, it is generational. And you never know who's listening. Of course, we heard from Jeff Harris before. But Elle Patton has just sent us a message as well. And anyone that sort of likes to follow tiny homes and the tiny home movement, Elle is a bit of a uh, a bit of a front runner. She's mm -hmm. been living in a tiny home on wheels for around three years, but in the heart of St Kilda. So talking about that idea of interspersing tiny homes just in and amongst our community. So Elle's gone on to say, I've got a tiny home in St Kilda, have done so for years without any negative impact to the local community or property values. It's about quality set up with safe and best practices with the local community in mind. Although I'm not for over-regulation, I'm all for safe building standards, safe and reasonable standards for placement of tiny homes and all of those associated utilities. Having lived in a tiny home for some time and being passionate advocate for this way of life, I'd like to point out that many want to live this way, not all doing it because they have to. If the mechanism were in place to do tiny villages well for both those who need and those who want this way of life. It would free up a lot of housing stock. I run a Facebook group 
There's nearly 50,000 of us who are all passionate about tiny homes. And Elle has said that so much better than I did before. <laughs> Sometimes it is a really good solution for those who are really falling, at, you know, who are at risk of becoming homeless. And then for others, it's a choice. Yeah, and it's a joy as well for so many people, which is why there's such engagement on a lot of those Facebook pages for people who are really passionate about this. And I guess that also comes back to what we were saying at the top of the program, that a lot of these tiny homes, they can be shipping containers which are converted, but in other ways they are so at the front of architecture and design and just being really clever with the way that, I guess, housing can be used. The other thing, Rochelle, is that there's nothing new with this idea of putting people together Mm. in a small zone. Like, we we have seen this in time memoriam. And as you sort of mentioned at the top of the program, is this about a village coming together and creating more than just a place for a lot of people to live next to each other, but a, a movement, a community? Are we missing that community sense by, I don't know, just a change in attitudes? Yeah, and, you know, the comparisons of, well, isn't that just a caravan park? And, well, yeah, maybe it is. And what's wrong with that? Many mm-hmm. people also choose to live in caravan parks permanently as well. So that just comes back to stigma. Someone who knows that all too well is Debbie McKenzie, the manager at Stray Leaves Caravan Park in Shepparton. Debbie, you've for a very long time you've worked in this industry and in this profession and you've got several permanent residents at the caravan park. They're mainly older couples or maybe bachelors, I think, who are a little older as well. That idea of creating a village in a tiny home that's kind of what you have isn't it hi rochelle good to talk to you again yes we still we've probably got 25 to 30 permanents still here and as you just said before some are probably elderly and some are bachelors but uh caravan parks in this area seem to be fading out and i actually was listening to the lady before talking about the container situation mm. there's a park over the river from me that actually has containers in their park and I had families come here during the COVID time that I had to um, put in for the government and she actually mentioned that they were paying $450 a week to live in a container that only had running water and a window. Oh, this is the exploitation that Wendy was talking about. Yeah, so people are thinking about it, but I think the biggest problem is if we can keep the parks the same as I run mine and not overpriced with the rental and the main thing is I think people are not jammed you know, side by side, you put them yeah. in areas where they get on due to age group or retirement or... And the other problem that's been created since COVID, a lot more people have got animals. So yeah. that's another issue that you've got to sort of know how to work out where this subdivide your park. There's another park in Marupna that was a permanent park. I think it's changed hands to be now over 50s. And they've got different areas for people with children, different areas for people with dogs. And if you can set it up like that, but I think if you don't, even with a tiny house village, if you did set one up, you'd still have to segregate where you put people to the age groups and what sort of lifestyles do they have children and all that because people living in one area without fences can create problems and mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 16 years in December and you sort of get to know them. It's their mm-hmm. home, but you've got to know how to sort of get it, know who gets on and I think I've got to pretty good gift at doing that now. Even, <laughs> I think yeah. you do too, Dave. Even if people come in as overnighters or, you know. So, yeah, mm. it's a it's a pretty a pretty mental thing to work out as you go, actually. Hey, Debbie, tell us about the sense of community that comes with people who are living as long-term residents, be it in a caravan park or, or just like in your experience, in your caravan park, where you had people, long-termers, living together. Do they have a real sense of community a real sense of family and how do you how do you foster that so it's actually a really beneficial thing for the town yeah they do um i think a lot of the parks there's about two or three of us older parks here the rest of them have all gone into cabins um and i think i think it's all about who owns the park if you want to buy a park and you want to make money no one cares about what you just asked me if you want to run this this park changed hands 18 months ago and basically they took it on because I stayed and they took it on because the previous owners wanted to look after the 30 permanents and oh, wow. the, the new owners took it on because they knew me and they knew that that's what I was good at looking after. So I've sort of, you know, I drive out every night, I don't live here, but I always think that this is their home and you just sort of, 
I've got six or four, four to six guys that have a coffee in the mornings at one end of the park and they all get on and if one's got a car that's broken down or whatever, or there can be a lady up the other end that'll walk down and ask them to fix hers or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, some Community. of the bachelors work, some of them don't, but I sort of know with the gut, when people come in, you sort of know what's going to work, I suppose. Well, Debbie, if Jeff Harris is too busy to be housing minister, I reckon you could throw your hand up and you'd be a, uh, a front runner as well. Thank you so much. It was lovely to catch up with you again. No worries. Thanks for your time. See Bye. Ya, Debbie McKenzie, manager at Stray Leaves Caravan Park. That I mean, it's interesting when Debbie... Dan spoke about that caravan parks are fading out as mm-hmm. well. I mean, she's just talking, she's talking about people's homes. You know, and when yeah. people say, oh, well, that's just a caravan park, isn't it? Well, yes, but these are people's homes. Mm-hmm. And people live there and there is community there. And finding a way to take judgment and stereotype out of this conversation is paramount, I think. Absolutely. And it's probably never been more important when you look at the amount of people that are struggling to make ends meet. Like we are in a cost of living crisis and in a housing crisis. Uh, and if Debbie does want to throw her hat in the ring, she's got my vote. That's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Christy's given us a bell from Kilmore. Good morning, Christy. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Very well. Do you have any experience with tiny homes? Um, yeah, yeah. This is um, going back probably 2015. Uh, relationship breakup and, and sort of didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, but to come home and I actually rented a nine by three, uh, like site shed, mm-hmm. um, and lived in my parents' backyard and actually really opened my eyes to, you know, I suppose, yeah, that smaller home living that it, it can be done. Um, being, you know, single with two dogs at the time, it worked for me, but something I think we really need to allow for is for those that don't choose tiny, like I yes. love tiny houses. Um, I love the TV shows, you know, it's amazing, but let's spare a thought for those that are forced into it mm-hmm. um, and allow for that. But, yeah, the um, I live nearby a, an over-55s gated community with, yeah, smaller two-bedroom style, all fenced off with their own private backyards, um, and I'd move in there in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm not over 55, I'm still got a, a fair way to go, but... Yeah, shared pool, shared tennis court, shared yeah, barbecue. all those things. And yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. true, Christy, in that I think a lot of people think tiny homes are just this one-size-fits-all solution, and they're not. Mm. And they yeah. are a part of the solution, but not if someone feels like they're being forced. But then on the flip side, what if somebody wants to live in one as well and then it's somehow being seen as a negative way to mm. to live your life. One thing that has come out, though, is the changes that councils are making. And Mayor Liz Patterson is from the Surf Coast Shire, just one of the councils that is trying to make this a little easier. You've had a, a two-year trial for mobile tiny homes. How's the trial going? What changes have you made and, and what impact has it had on the community, Liz? Hi, thanks for having me on. So we're actually about to start our two-year trial, so it's starting this summer the trial so we haven't actually had it running yet um but we're we're looking um as we've been talking about around there's multiple drivers for the for the trial whether it be people that want um that sustainable lifestyle you know less in resource intensive and you know in a beautiful architecturally designed tiny house or whether it's people that you know to meet our we've got a housing and um affordability sort of crisis for housing in out for workers and and the like in our shire and so um being a tourist area we can really struggle to get doctors nurses hospitality workers and so this is one area that we're looking that might help to address that liz what's the community pushback been like often this is one thing where we do hear about you know there, there's an example of it it would work would it help us get doctors and nurses and and hospitality workers but a general push from the community says, I like it, but not here. How's your shire reacted to it? Look, we there hasn't been any pushback yet. As such, the trial's starting this summer, so we will have to wait and see. That's hence it's a two-year trial to really understand how it works within the community. But there's plenty in the community that are supportive and that's come from the community pushing and saying to council, we want to run... That we want to have tiny houses. How can we make that work? Mm. So, yeah, that's why we're sort of... We're doing a trial and looking at, you know, making sure um, we, we look at how building regulations are, are managed, looking at, you know, the appropriate locations. There's obviously a lot of bushfire risk in our shire, so, you know, not every location is appropriate. So working out where's appropriate 
locations for tiny houses. So what um, sort of locations are you are you thinking here, Liz? Is it on private properties? Are you looking at yes, approaching yes. government for Crown land or Vic Roads land? And could it go that step further if this is successful, do you think? And could it, rather than always being uh, a tiny home on somebody's farm or someone's backyard to maybe a little village somewhere in the in the surf coast? At, at the, this point, our trial is for um, on private property. So we're sort of enabling the community to to have tiny houses or a tiny house on, on their property um, for someone to live in, not for an Airbnb. It has to be for someone to live in on an ongoing basis. It's not for sort of short-term rental or things like that. So it has to be for someone to live in and um, on private property. That's where we're going with it at this stage. I'm not sure what it could evolve into, but that's where we're focusing at the moment. Liz, thanks for your time this morning and we'll keep in touch with this two-year trial because if it is the answers that Mm. we're looking for, we want to hear about it. That was Mayor Liz Patterson from the Surf Coast Shire talking about the trial that they've got underway starting this summer. So the Surf Coast Shire could look a little bit different for the next two years. Good morning, Tim. What's your experience with tiny homes? Uh, I've had a fairly long career in uh, in design, architecture, interiors, uh, and we were living overseas when COVID kicked off and had to come back in quite a hurry. And for personal and professional reasons, I decided to start a business focusing on what I call small space design, and a large amount of that is designing tiny houses. And what I've found is that um, there's as many different types and reasons that people want to go tiny as there are for conventional buildings. And I'm not actually sure where this so-called pushback and stigma is coming from. I haven't seen a lot of it. It's, it's generally uh, aspirational. Sure, if, if uh, people had uh, a much larger budget, they might decide to go a, you know, a grander, more lovely house wherever. But most people that I've done work for and builders I've worked with, uh, they're really excited about it. It's such an amazing yeah. community. And... Um, it, it's not like, oh, God, I have to do this. It's, it's you know, with the yeah. changes in technology, having Wi-Fi and great appliances and... And you know. you're so right in that idea of there's lots of different reasons. And I love that you say the term choosing to go tiny because anyone that's watched mm-hmm. Tiny House Nation, Dan Miles, I've got you onto that. Yep. It's all about going tiny. But that program, and whether or not that skews people's opinions of what tiny homes look like, but it's 100% that program is all about choice. But this is interesting. It says, I'm a moderator on a tiny house page. There are dozens of people every week joining the group because they want to live in a tiny home. This is no longer a fringe idea and councils need to stop blocking the process of this concept. With regards to community living, residential parks are even better concepts that can be easily modified to tiny home communities. The international communities like this have existed for decades, which is just another model. And I think that text is so right. This is no longer a fringe idea. Mm. Councils do need to get on board. And it's not fringe globally. It's not even fringe here in Australia. And I, I guess a way that we can take this conversation full circle was earlier in the call, we had a you never know who's listening to the conversation now, Rochelle. And we had Jeff Harris calling, someone who's put his money where his mouth is and has really backed this idea and created a tiny housing village. That was under the auspices of launch housing. And someone who has been a big part of that is Roberta Buchanan, the Executive Director of Housing Solutions at Launch Housing. Roberta, through your work, you created a tiny home village. This is one of several around the country that's been put forward and uh, put forward as a solution in many ways. How did that come about? How did that solution work? Did it actually tick the boxes that you were hoping? Yeah, so I think it's important to... Or good, good morning, everyone. I think it's important to understand that at the time uh, that we delivered um, this really important site, it was a time when there was no funding available for social housing. Um, so we worked with the Harris Family Foundation um, for a response for people who were experiencing uh, chronic homelessness um, and delivered 48 uh, tiny homes across seven sites. And those seven sites where what's really important about this project was leased land uh, from a government agency. Being, up, being given the land is fundamental in this, but pushback from the community is also something that can stop 
projects like this from going ahead. At the time, Roberta, was there pushback from other locals at council meetings, for example? Um, look, I, I wasn't actually at the organisation at that time, so I wouldn't be able to really give you an accurate answer on that. But I do know in terms of as a housing solution for people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, it was a terrific solution. Um, what needed to come along with it as well was housing and support. So the support for people who are residing um, uh, in, the, in the tiny homes. And of course, there are many families who need at social and affordable housing that actually need larger outcomes, so large family households that it's not a solution for. But for, for the people residing there, it's across seven sites, so three to four modular homes um, uh, uh, across multiple sites. Um, the homes have been accepted in the local communities now and the people residing um, in them are living um, uh, great lives. It's not the end and the only solution to the housing crisis, but mm. I think what's really important from the Harris Transportable Project is the importance of community housing sector, such as launch housing, working with government agencies on land available to build supply and build supply quickly. And I guess, like you said, Roberta, this is an answer, not the only answer. Correct. I guess just finally, how do we extrapolate the success that you've had to a broader level, because this has been done in a basically a pilot sense. We know that this has worked. How do we get it to to affect more people? How do we extrapolate this out and make it work on a on a national scale? Can that be done? Look, it's not the solution for everyone, but it is a solution for some. Um, there is also very, you know, there's also innovation in construction methods such as modular homes. And of course, it's not an answer for to get increased um, capacity through apartment dwellings and um, in, in uh, middle ring sites. So I think in terms of the solution, it was a solution in a time of nothing and it was a terrific solution. But what we really need for the cohorts in particular that launch housing support is we need really great accommodation um, that can last for a long term, uh, along with the support to support those people residing in the properties. And land is a terrific way of supporting whether it's tiny homes, modular homes or high density dwellings. Yeah. The key to any future housing supply is the land available to do it on. Roberta, thanks so much for your time. We know you stepped out of a meeting to join us, so we appreciate it. Roberta Buchanan, the Executive Director of Launch Housing Solutions. Jane, you've been waiting so patiently. We haven't left you a lot of time, but what did you want to say? Um, well, thank you for the conversation. I'd really like to say I'm 55 years old. I've been renting all my life. I live in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I would love the opportunity to, to have a tiny home or some similar kind of opportunity I've worked all my life. I can contribute to, and you know, the income. I've got an income. I can contribute to the cost of rent. I can contribute to a community. Uh, councils really need to um, get get with the program yes. about what the need is out there. Yeah, and, and it would really suit you. Themselves. Yeah, that's great to know, Jane. And I think it is individual. Jane, thank you for holding. Daniel Miles, as always, joining us from ABC Warrnambool. I feel like we're going to be continuing to have today's conversation and that you go around in circles, but I think it's still important to have that conversation. Absolutely it is. It's been a great one to be a part of. My name's Rochelle Hunt. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Don't forget, subscribe to the Conversation Hour podcast. Take care.